Hello, everyone. Welcome to Pentel Pogs with Watson. I am indeed your host, Christian Watson, and it is again a great privilege to have on another special guest, Kyle Hooten, a contributor to the Alpha News Minnesota, a contributor to Daily, Daily Caller, and someone who overall has done excellent work covering the Minneapolis riots that broke out after the death of George Floyd, and who has really been providing a lot of good information to all of us who may not be getting the entire story from the traditional media. Uh, in fact, I think Kyle has himself not only uh, faced a lot of pressure and a lot of attacks for putting himself in this position, he's also been robbed. So let's <laughs> start off with that, Kyle. First of all, how are you? And second of all, just explain what you do. And third of all, the robbery, how that all happened, how that all go down. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on. Pleasure to be here. Like you said, my name is Kyle. I'm a reporter. I work for Alpha News and The Daily Caller based out in D.C. And uh, I've been covering the riots here in Minneapolis. We didn't expect there to be such riotous violence when we first heard the terrible news about George Floyd. But uh, as soon as that situation emerged, reporters like myself that work for Alpha News were on the ground covering the situation. And we've been on the ground for a couple months now. And uh, just two nights ago, I was on the ground near Nicolette Mall, right in downtown Minneapolis, when two individuals took issue with the fact that I was wearing a bulletproof vest and a backpack, and uh, they stole it from me. They were able to do so because one of the guys had a gun, and, you know, I decided that I can buy a new backpack, but I'd rather live to uh, see another day of reporting. In the wake of that incident, I've gotten hundreds of unsavory messages and dozens of death threats from people that don't want to see this kind of reporting continue. And I know this is not unique. A friend of mine was also robbed of her phone when she was recording riotous behavior in Minneapolis as well. Oh my. And so uh, tell me, uh, not, not, this is largely insignificant. I think that it's better that you're right. And the ideas and the sort of, uh, sort of spiritual mission that you're pushing forth here, getting the truth disseminated from the sort of overarching structure that tries to control what the truth is, i.e. the media, is very important. But as a side note, what did you lose in the backpack? Anything invaluable? You know, nothing that can't be replaced. I was wearing my bulletproof vest. I lost that. It's the most expensive thing by far. But thankfully, a member of law enforcement who wishes to remain anonymous is sending me a new one. So I feel very privileged to receive that. My backpack contained uh, just a couple of gas masks, a medical kit, kind of the routine riot supplies that we like to carry. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. And yes, and, you know, law enforcement, for all of the crap they get, for all of the sort of mal malice they get from a lot of people, there are a lot of law enforcement officers individually who want to see nothing more than a safe, prosperous community in which they work, a community that is uh, serving, you know, their citizens insofar as they're protecting their rights. And so I'm happy that you're getting help in that way. So let's go back because you are in college still, correct? Absolutely. I go to St. Olaf in Northfield, Minnesota, about 30 minutes south of uh, the Twin Cities. You are in college still, and yet you are out here and you are doing things that people go take four years of education or age, age of education before they even have a dream or a chance of doing that. This not, I'm also in college as well, but still, you're doing is much more impressive than what I'm doing. Um, so, <laughs> so what got you into this sort of, not gonzo journalism, but sort of guerrilla journalism going on the streets, live stream, putting it on Twitter, putting it on Instagram? What got you into that? Because that is, that disrupts the hierarchy 
of how journalism is typically carried out. As you know, yeah. most of the time when there is a live reporter or reporter on the scene, they are stationary, they have, there's a big camera behind them, and they have a microphone and blazing with the label of whatever network they uh, pay their allegiance to. But with this new era of new media journalism, you have a phone, a, a relatively, you know, it could be a relatively inexpensive phone, a smartphone that can stream, and you have the ability to be a journalist. So what got you into that line of work, number one? Number two, what is the reaction you've gotten, if at all, from the traditional media and how they do things? Because they have posted a lot of your work on their network. You know, you've been on Fox, you've been on Newsmax, you've been all over the place. So tell me how that's been for you. Yeah, well, I think you made a very important point when you talked about disrupting that hierarchy. And that's what first got me into journalism. You know, I'm a college student. And when I showed up, there was a certain bias in my institution. And they were teaching facts with a heavy slant. And I just didn't feel like the truth was really out there. So that's where I got my start in media was trying to uh, you know, bring another side to discussion and get a fuller picture of the truth painted when it comes to you know, college education. Then I went off and I interned at the Daily Caller two summers ago, uh, where I sort of learned how to do this sort of on the street style journalism that we do. Uh, the video folks over there did a great job sort of teaching me the mechanics of what that looks like, you know, how to find a safe spot to film in a riot, all this kind of stuff. And that's where I got my first taste of what it feels like to be untethered from a large media machine, but still reporting. Uh, since then, I've kept doing it because I like it. You know, it, it, it sounds almost flippant to say, but it's it's satisfying and enjoyable to uh, to see the news happening in your backyard and then see your reporting show up, you know, in, in higher places than just on my own platform, because I feel like it helps put the real truth out there. The reaction I've gotten from mainstream media has been positive at the national level and terrible at the local level. Uh, like you said, I work for Alpha News, which is a conservative leaning outlet here in Minnesota. And uh, sort of the mainstream Minnesota outlets, I'm thinking about the Star Tribune specifically, City Pages, they own, they're owned by the Star Tribune, don't like us. They don't like us at all. If we see them in public, which is rare because they barely get out there, they're very rude, very impolite. And, uh, you know, a couple of editors from some of these Minnesota outlets have been taking shots at me on Twitter and this kind of thing. And they really don't like what we're doing. At the national level, there's more appreciation for the kind of footage that journalists like myself gather. You know, Fox News picks it up from time to time. And I've really enjoyed seeing my footage, you know, played on TV because I feel like uh, it's important that people see exactly what's going on through the relatively unfiltered lens of an iPhone. <laughs> that is a beautiful way to put it. A relatively unfiltered lens of an iPhone. I can see why you're doing so well. Huh, yeah, you, you, have a, you have a way with words. Um, no, I think that this is, you're kidding on something that is quite literally the panic of a lot of traditional media, especially traditional local media. As I'm sure you know, you need no explanation for this, this reality, this harrowing reality, but a lot of local media, local journalism is not dying, but it's transitioning. See, people, people who were born in the 80s, the 70s, 60s, who read newspapers, grew up watching Walter Cronkite on CBS, ABC, NBC, one of those three, sort of tri the trifecta I, I call a mediocrity, because there's nothing special about them. They just report the facts, not really. They, they report what, what they, the gatekeepers deem to be valuable to you, and they do so ostensibly objectively, but they're not really being objective, they're being very selective. But anyway, and, and in, that's, this is why the kind of media you're doing has kind of erupted and it's grown and it's germane and very powerful that they can't keep up with. But, you know, local journalism is no longer newspapers. It is no longer as in, 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 the, in the store um, bargain paper. Local journalism is now, if it does exist at all, it involves a cell phone and it involves wit. 
Those are two things that, well, one, you can just go get without any sort of degree. Or, and But one, the other one, wit, cannot be taught, cannot be instilled in you by a class, cannot be instilled in you by a code of conduct or a code of ethics, some sort of tract by which a lot of people who are journalists pledge their, pledge their, on their hearts and their breasts, pledge their lives to. It cannot be instilled in you upon these things. Uh, I think that's why you're getting this kind of reaction, because they understand that the old ways of transitioning something that's much more better much more positive and much more powerful. For example, the kind of journalism I do, I'm an opinion journalist. And there are folks, even at the journalism school in my, at my university, that don't get that. Because to them, it's all about, again, that pretense of objectivity, which is not really objective whatsoever. It is, again, a selective, a selective action, which decides according to a certain um, view, or a, a certain standard of what they think objectivity is, what information is valuable for the public consumption. It's gatekeeping 101, but the gatekeepers are gone. So that's why you're threatening these people, because they understand at a local level, especially when you don't have as much capital to oppose that kind of, this kind of resurgence, this kind of natural cycle of change and rebirth that rejuvenation that journalism is going through, they understand they can't contend with that. The bigger, you know, traditional media, they've recognized this, which is why Fox has Fox Nation and, you know, CNN yeah. has CNN Go, and they're starting to stream now. They've recognized this. Um, so, you know, if someone, let me lead this into a question because I'm kind of going on here, but if someone wanted to be a journalist in this new media era, A, what would you suggest them to do? And B, would you, in that suggestion, would you exhort them not to take a course at their university's journalism class, which may be teaching something that is entirely archaic to this kind of new journalism. Well, I, I do not think you should get a journalism degree personally. Uh, I've spoken with editors at uh, sites that I've written for, specifically The Daily Caller, and they've said that they actually stray away a little bit from hiring uh, journalism school majors because in, in their view, uh, it's not that difficult to write as a journalist. What we do, we, we like to pretend like it's difficult and, you know, there's some skill involved, but the actual prose that we're writing isn't, you know, complicated from a literary perspective. It's a pretty, Oh, not know, at all. It's like a pretty basic ninth, level of grade level. Yeah, exactly. That's what you try to do. And, uh, you know, I, I've talked with editors that because of that would rather hire somebody with a background in something else that can make them an expert, like a Middle Eastern studies major or somebody that studied political history, this kind of thing, because they bring something else to the table as well, in addition to just being able to write at that eighth grade level. That's not to deride anybody in journalism school, just what I've heard. Uh, I would not recommend personally that uh, somebody straight off the bat picks up a phone and walks into a riot because part of uh, what I do does rely on some sort of command structure. You know, I'm not beholden to the supposedly objective gatekeepers of mainstream media, but I do have people behind me that if I come up with a really good clip, I can send it to them and they'll magnify it. And I do have individuals that watch police scanners and that will call me if things get really bad. And I've got people that'll come help me if I'm in a tough jam. And you know, the websites that, uh, one of the websites I work for has a legal team. So if there's some kind of issue there, they can help resolve it. And I think it's very dangerous to go into situations like the Minneapolis riots without some sort of support network. So um, I would not recommend it. You know, anybody just charges headlong into these situations. What you should do if you want to become a journalist, though, is uh, contact somebody 
at a, a, a site that you want to write for. Don't shoot for that pretense of objectivity that you were just speaking about, because in my mind, there's nothing more dangerous than an editor that purports to be completely objective, because all they're doing by saying they're objective is uh, taking the facts that they like and stamping them with this objectivity rubber stamp that uh, makes it impossible to argue with. And I think that's very dangerous. What you should do is, you know, find a site that's upfront about what its views are. Find a site that, you know, agrees with your worldview and doesn't hide that there is a bias. I'm very open about the fact that I'm a conservative journalist. If you don't like it, go read something from a liberal journalist. Make your own conclusions. I think it's, it's critical that, uh, that, that you acknowledge what your bias is going into the profession. And I, I entirely agree because, again, we are but human beings. Mm. And human beings have a set of ideological precepts that we either acquire through tradition, through rearing, through research, so on and so forth. And no matter what you are doing, those ideological precepts, your worldview is going to color a lot of the actions that you take in life. In fact, it should, or else it's not a worldview, it's a platitude. And unfortunately, exactly. we have too many platitudes, not many worldviews in this world. <laughs> so, That's I mean, it, it, the entire. I have a lot of questions I can ask because I want to push on this idea a little bit more because this is a very important idea. But don't you think it's a little obtuse for a lot of people who expect journalists to be objective and fair and so on and so forth uh, because they are quite obviously forgetting how journalism was conceived in America. There was no objectivity. It was quite literally the um, name of a political party and there's a newspaper here opposing one here. This idea of objective journalism is actually an aberration, sort of a new growth of the of like very recent American history, past hundred years or so. So, come and talk talk to me through this. What do you think about that? Do you do you think that people are simply attaching themselves to sort of a traditionalistic tool, as in the sense that if you were born in the fifties or the sixties or the seventies or the eighties, you grew up with this mode of journalism that was objective, so to speak, mm -hmm. and you may conveniently forget the history before that because as human beings I mean, we are short-sighted we remember what was instilled into us remember what we, we have a nostalgia for the past so to speak or is there a valid point that if you don't have independent fact finders which again is a misnomer in my opinion but if you don't have independent fact finders you cannot you're essentially dictating to the person the contents of their mind right the refrain why can't I make my own mind up? Why do you have to tell me? You see what I'm saying? So what do you think about all yeah, that? Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, it's very interesting that everywhere in society, except for journalism, we're seeing the move away from objectivity. You learn in college that there's no objective morality. You learn through, you know, popular uh, entertainment media that, you know, anything goes, do whatever you want to, live how it feels good. Nothing is objective, abandon religion. But for some reason in, in the news media, we're told that, you know, objectivity is the highest standard. It's the only place where we're not abandoning or purporting to not abandon objectivity. And I think that's because it's being weaponized. I don't think, if you get these people to be completely honest, I don't think the editors at the New York Times, I don't think the people in the production rooms at any cable network would actually tell you that they're being objective. I think they know in their heart of hearts that they're using objectivity as a veil behind which they can do anything they want to. And I think it's disgusting that the only place uh, that that still exists, even in farce, is media. I mean, it's just a lie. Oh yeah, especially the New York Times, whose led editorial board just had a, a a sort of orgasmic meltdown that Tom Cotton's words dare be printed in their newspaper. So, I, 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 I wanted to ask the New York Times, why would you hire someone 
Again, especially in the pretense of objectivity makes this even more absurd. Why would you hire someone under the uh, the pretense of, of, of sort of, and an editorial board is a little bit different. Editorial boards obviously are focusing on opinion, but they still have to worry about facts. So why would you hire someone on the pretense they adhere to facts, when in all reality, you could probably divine from their resume or divine as, you know, because they don't immediately hire you. They probably have you on a few trial periods. Oh, yeah. Divine from the trial period, you know, this, this person may not be someone who cares about facts, but instead is driven entirely by the beast of emotion. Why? Well, why would you do it? But yeah. it's because it, 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 here's why. Here's why they do it. They do it because these papers, like the New York Times, Washington Post, are so unimpeachable in the American parlance. They are so unimpeachable mm -hmm. in the American mind that they think they can get away with anything. If, you, if it comes from Washington Post, it is assumed that is near gospel truth or nigh gospel truth. You see? Absolutely. And so this is another danger of opportunity that most people don't touch on. Not only does it give you the appearance of being correct, it instills a sense of awe in people in almost any circumstance that your paper is involved that you will always be remembered in that light. You will always be remembered in that sort of objective light that even if you think that is completely false, you could still be considered all right. Oh, they made a mistake. Errors, it happens. What about when it's not an error? What if, it's a, what if it's an omission? A deliberate omission? That's happened several times. Several things the New York Times has done. So like, so it's like the, the golden shower story they push. I mean, absolutely <laughs> zero evidence. Zero evidence yeah. in a, a smear attempt to attack the press. Zero evidence, none whatsoever. We have sources that say there's a tape. Oh, what? <laughs> I mean, why are you? you my point, what right? sources? Yeah. Precise. That's my point. And so it's, yeah, it's just yeah. it's just ridiculous. This this curse of objectivity has just really told taken a toll on American society. Um, but one of the one of the staples of old media that you are saying is important is association, right? So if you belong to a a news group or a news organization, you have added resources that can help your track. And right. so that is important in your opinion, correct? So being entirely freelance is not wise, especially in this age of covering riots and so on and so forth, right? If you're going to freelance, you should have very good friends at an actual outlet. You know, I think that the association doesn't provide you with a stamp of legitimacy. Your work provides you with legitimacy. But the association provides resources and uh, there's a certain synergy to it. I've noticed that if I just go out on my own trying to find some story on the internet to write somewhere, it's not going to go very well. But even if I'm just in a group chat with a couple other journalists and we talk about a few ideas, you know, the process goes along a whole lot better. Absolutely. So getting away from the more abstract stuff, because I told you this is going to be a very little bit of an abstract conversation because oh, yeah. I'm tired of the current state of our political conversation, talking points, lethargic, mm -hmm. all kind of stuff. It, 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 it frustrates me. I want the truth, and the truth is not found in simplicity. Simple as that. The truth can, uh, well, well, when the truth is revealed, it can be simple, but it is not found in simplicity, because simplicity is not that which allowed us to obtain the truth, or obtain some right. truth about our universe. I mean, Newton's law of gravitation is not simplistic at all. It's a very complex thing. The explanation is the simplistic, right? So the result is simplistic, but the process that you obtain the result, which is almost more, as more important, or even more important than the result itself, is not simplistic. So, yeah. Let's get back to the Minneapolis riots. Number one, when did you get to the ground, number one? So the very, it's kind of a funny story. I was actually in surgery when George Floyd died. 
So that the first 12 hours, I was just kind of coming off of anesthesia and trying to figure out what was happening. And then um, the night that they burned that six-story building down is when I was there. And that was, if you've seen the pictures of the target getting looted, that was that night. And if you've seen the pictures of that skyscraper collapsing, uh, the RNC actually played a clip of that building collapse that I took in their introduction to Vice President Mike Pence. So that's become a sort of a famous image is that building collapse. That's the first night I was on the ground. The night that the uh, looters and rioters overran the third precinct. I was not on the ground. I was uh, doing interviews about the first night. And then uh, for several nights after that, I was back on the ground. So I missed the first night and the third night, but I was there pretty much um, for all the nights other than that during the crescendo of the violence. And that's been continuous throughout the summer. You've consistently been there. I've consistently been there. I've taken a few. I went out west for a vacation. And I've missed a few events here and there. But uh, yes, uh, either myself or one of my colleagues at Alpha News, specifically Rebecca Brandon, has been doing an excellent job of staying on the ground. When the Minneapolis City Council announced their, uh, their, their uh, sort of plan to uh, completely dissolve the police department, and they had a vote on it and everything, and there was, I, think there, I believe there was one, and I'm not sure. I, I think this is true. I do not know. So I'm going to say that. Well, I don't know everything. I think there was one standing, standout council member that said, this is crazy. This is nonsense. This is ludicrous. Um, but when they made that sort of ultimatum towards the law enforcement community in Minneapolis, one, what was the overall demeanor of law enforcement once that was made, uh, particularly law enforcement that were um, guarding or <laughs> I guess I guess they were guarding who are involved who are near the protests. Let's yeah, say that yeah. who were near the protests. They were not guard. Why well, I, I understand we'll talk about that in a minute. Who were near the protests? What was their overall demeanor? And two, did that sort of excite a kind of fervor or passion within the protest to continue to be destructive once the city council kind of bought it, bought into their rhetoric to fund the police, Boston police at that time rhetoric. Mm -hmm. The police, from what I've heard, and I have one anonymous law enforcement source in Minneapolis, and he tells me that uh, things are not doing well from an administrative standpoint, and I think anybody who has the internet can ascertain that fact as well. Um, officers appear to be under-supported. Uh, well, they've gotten a little bit more aggressive recently, and they've been able to shut down violence a little bit quicker than they have previously. They're still not able to cover a very wide area. The other night when I was robbed in the Nicolette Mall area, they had secured two blocks, but all the blocks around those two blocks were left to complete pandemonium. So uh, the officers... I, I think have had a lot to deal with just keeping themselves safe, you know, and, and it's very difficult for them to worry about everybody else's safety when they're under direct assault, because these aren't simply protests. These are anti-police protests, which means that uh, not only is the neighborhoods that are getting looted the target, but law enforcement themselves are the target. Uh, after the city council bought into BLM's rhetoric about defunding the police, uh, yes, there was definitely a tempo change. Um, it, it, it appears now that there's more legal hurdles to actually dismantling the Minneapolis Police Department than uh, they might have initially anticipated. Well, they've continued work on that. It doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime very soon. Um, but definitely the public was emboldened by the council buying their rhetoric. And uh, it, it, it's created a weird dynamic in the city, from what I can tell, between city leadership, you know, Mayor Jacob Fry, the police, and then the state leadership. Uh, Governor Walls, uh, Minnesota Governor Tim Walls, he's a Democrat, called out the Minneapolis mayor for, you know, failing to act. 
And then the police called out Minneapolis mayor for failing to act. And then Mayor Fry is looking back and pointing his finger at the governor and the police. And it's just a whole, it's a whole issue. Every element of the government here in Minnesota has devolved into small factions. You've got sort of the governor's faction, the mayor's faction, the police. There's no unification. There's no unified response. And you can see the results of that in the street. There's 400 people gathering in Uptown right now. Businesses have boarded up their windows. It's peaceful, but the sun sets in three hours and we'll see where it goes from there. This is what happens. This is yeah. prim primarily what happens when platitudes meet reality. Exactly. This is what happens. This is what happens when you try. So William F. Buckley had a famous phrase. He back in the sixties, he started American Freedom, which was mm -hmm. the conservative response to the um, burgeoning communist, progressive, leftist sort of um, movement in America. He said, "Do not immunitize the eschaton." which basically is a very fancy way of saying, do not try to bring heaven upon earth. Do not try to make what you idealize as paradise into reality because there will be trouble. There'll be practical trouble and there'll be moral trouble. But we're seeing both practical trouble from an, an operational standpoint with the police department in Minneapolis and you know how they're being treated. And we're also seeing moral trouble. You're, you're still in, this is evident in a thing you posted on Twitter today where businesses in Minneapolis are quite literally being constrained by the law from being able to defend yeah. their property. They are trying to amortize yeah. the eschaton in such a gross way that it's not even paradise they're trying to unleash. It's absolute malevolence they're trying to unleash. And it just boils my blood. It truly does. And so, Absolutely. yeah, but th this is what happens when those sort of abstract ideas hit the, uh, the rubber of them, hit the road, so to speak, and they meet reality. Reality will always be what reality is. No matter how much they want to try to narrate away truth, narrate away value, and value exists, truth exists, reality exists. Mm -hmm. And no matter what you try to do, those constants will always, you know, always stand. And so you can even be a left-leaning person and somewhat admit this. But from my understanding, they are not, this is not the Athenian school of philosophy that's happening in Minneapolis. This is not the commons. This is not, this is not yeah. well, economy they France. This is not a group of people that actually want to cultivate a stronger intellectual mindfulness. These are not people who necessarily even care about the plight they believe African-Americans face. These are activists, revolutionaries, who have a predetermined idea of what is transpiring in America, an absolute idea of what is transpiring in America, an almost fetishistic obsession with self-victimization, an almost sadistic yeah. obsession with the so-called so affects other people, as they call it, white complicity or whatever, has on black people. You have all these people have all these ideas in their head, and they're just not manifesting them in the correct way. And so, yeah, we didn't And what's see even that. more disturbing... It well, what's even more disturbing is how little mental flexibility the mob actually has. They have their platitudes. The platitudes don't work because they are not developed, you know, in reference to reality. But then they hit the road, they completely fail, and people do not adapt their thinking at all. We can make the same mistake night after night after night for two months, and people don't incorporate the new information into their belief system even a little bit. I mean, you see that with the fact that these people are self-professed communists. I know it sounds like I'm beating a dead horse, but communism doesn't work. It's never worked. And uh, they, they, they don't seem to realize that. They don't recognize the outcome of their actions and then uh, make new actions based on those results. It, it, they're just completely blind to it. Right, right, precisely, precisely. They have renounced the undeniable, unavoidable aspect of reality, the aspect of practicality. 
even mm-hmm. me as a libertarian, some would even deride me as a purist libertarian, or, you know, or as mm-hmm. or a bootlicker or whatever they want to call me. Even me as that, I genuinely, I, I, I never thought boots, boots even looked remotely appealing. So I don't know what all that's about. <laughs> but but I, I, I myself am a very stringent believer and adhere to inherent certain ethical codes. And I believe that a government that that social engineers, a government that infringes upon my rights, a government that restrains me from being able to actualize the protection of my rights is an unjust government. I don't care what they're doing it for. I don't care why they're doing it. And you see in Minneapolis, they're literally restraining people from being able to protect their rights, their property. I don't care why they're doing yeah. it. Um, but I even understand that there are some elements of reality that interact with libertarianism, interact with conservatism in a way that is adverse to how I like to idealize them. And what do I do? I don't ignore reality. What I do, I proceed forth. I interact with the world. I interact with the element of reality. And I try to see how I can hone, best hone my beliefs around that locus of resistance so that I can get the best result out of it, both intellectually, morally, and spiritually. That's what I do. You're supposed to refine yourself. The human being is a constant sort of engine, machine, being refined and shaped. But if it's not refined, if, it's does, if we don't do the maintenance repairs, the machine's going to get rusted. And their machines have gotten rushed, way rushed. Yeah. So I mean, it's just it's a, it's a shame. It's a shame. Um, what That's is shame. one place? It, we've seen, yeah. yeah, go on. Oh, I was just going to say the one place we've seen conservatives be sort of successful in undergoing that process is when free market conservatives are faced with issues about big tech and uh, you know what do we do with Google and Facebook? Do we allow them to keep operating? You know, under some sort of free market principle, or do we adapt our ideology and say, look? We hold the free market dear, but we also have other prerogatives, uh, you know, related to privacy and these other things. I just think that's kind of an interesting example of that refinement process you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, and that happens. And, and, and you know, I'll be frank with you. I think that, that that entire discussion about big tech and the villainization of big tech is a problem that uh, uh, those of us on the right have. It's a big problem. I think there's some there's some validity to it. But if you're truly if you truly believe in a free market, then big tech is not going to be your primary concern. These subsidies they get would be your primary concern. The subsidies that all these that 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 is we if you really believe in the free market you're not going to be worried about big tech self-regulating because the self-regulation is literally the a a a, a natural principle of liberty that's what happens that's how i know liberty actually flourishes self-regulation but um back to the riots um have they calmed down at all because what i've seen from certain news articles what i've seen from your work would be would suggest to me that the string of violence and the furious rage has just continued over these past few months. So has it calmed down at all in your experience or has it gotten worse? Has it gotten better and worse in some um, sort of increasing and increasing intervals? What have been your experience? Well, the violence has not stayed 100% this entire time, but the inciting factors required to bring about that violence have gone way down. So um, you'll remember that it took quite a lot to trigger the initial riot, the death of George Floyd. This is not the first time Minnesota had this sort of controversy. You'll remember that Philando Castile died under, you know, equally egregious circumstances, and that did not trigger riots. So it took quite a lot to incite the initial riots, but now it takes much, much, much less. The riots we saw two days ago were started by the rumor that somebody was killed by the police. He wasn't. The video clearly shows him shooting himself. It's a tragic, graphic, disgusting video, but he commits suicide. The police did not shoot him. And uh, the, the fact that we had rioting and violence and shots fired in the streets two nights in a row over a rumor 
is very disturbing. So no, while the violence hasn't been going at 100% every single night, the threshold uh, that we have to you know, cross for the violence to begin is very low. People are so on edge, and it seems like violence can break out at any second because it does break out at any second. Have you seen any libertarian or conservative-leaning protesters or people on the field um, that have been sort of amendable to both sides? that may think that there is a problem of police brutality, but also think are, are prudent enough to um, categorize that problem of police brutality, not as a race issue and not as a law enforcement inherent issue, but as an issue inherent to the mindset of certain individuals, the unfortunate mind of certain individuals that manage to grant power. And if so, how loud have they been? Because it seems to me those kind of prudent voices are just being drowned out by the shrill, you know, or ear-shattering scream of, in, of no justice, no peace, a phrase which was primarily used by MLK in the 60s to sort of conflate the ideas of you know, justice and peace, even though the, both of those things are separate. Sometimes justice will necessarily bring about violence. Other times peace will necessarily allow injustice. I mean, when, you, when you get into a sort of linguistic investigation of these terms, you realize how corrupt and unsound they are. I understand why it was used in the Vietnam, uh, in the Vietnam War era protest. I understand it, but it was just as fundamentally unsound then as it is now. So beyond that platitude, which makes no conceptual sense, no logical sense, have you seen anyone outside of that mind control, that mind high, that is actually speaking prudently, even people who might be on the left? Sure. Uh, the majority of people you see in the streets don't seem to have any specific articulated ideology. Uh, in the daytime, you'll have people with picket signs with more you know, ideological foundation, but at nighttime, it seems to be just criminals taking advantage of the chaos. I've encountered probably one of these sort of libertarian types and he was a guy out there with a rifle i didn't want to be filmed and you know he said you know look i'm protecting this it was like a little neighborhood owned gas station he's like i'm going to protect this i stand against police brutality he's a libertarian but uh you know he also doesn't want things burned i encountered him and then i saw a video uh two nights ago of you know two other guys also carrying rifles kind of articulating that same sentiment to the camera i think the media likes to demonize them they call them the you know the boogaloo boys and all this kind of stuff but uh, yeah, there's definitely a couple people out there that oppose both violence and police brutality. And, you know, personally, I think that's a totally, completely reasonable position to take. And I agree with what you just said about how um, sometimes the discussion isn't about demonizing law enforcement. It's about demonizing sick people that got into the wrong job. And uh, I think we could use a lot more punditry discussing that idea here in Minneapolis than, uh, you know, throwing Molotovs down the street. Well, here I am. <laughs> well, not, not in Minneapolis, but here I am. I'm trying. I'm Absolutely. trying. Man. Yeah, because here's the bind, the economist bind. It's either you support law enforcement entirely or you have a little reservation about them and therefore you hate them entirely. Yeah. And on the left, it's either if you support law enforcement, you support years upon years upon decades of injustice, which, are, which in their view is ingrained into the spirit, the very spirit of America. And if you mm -hmm. are law enforcement yourself, you're a part of that system, even if your actions are benevolent. So both, both sides, even my side, the right-leaning side, have work to do 
I can support individuals within law enforcement. I can support the concept of law enforcement while also on an individual level, scorning and lancing those who dare raise their hands or dare raise their weapons against someone unjustly. I can, I can scorn those Belfort circumstances. I needn't hate all of law enforcement or I needn't not support law enforcement to dislike bad law enforcers. Um, but yeah. when the other side, Black Lives Matter, says we have to get rid of all the police, you, they, they, do, they do two things. Number one, they endeavor in a fallacy. But that fallacy is very, very powerful from a presentation standpoint. What that fallacy does, it frames the conversation as an all or nothing, a zero-sum quality. They are quite literally anointing the political conversation with a zero-sum quality. And when you do that, there is no wiggle room. I think that is intentional, actually. It's, it's intentional. Absolutely. A lot of them will tell you it's intentional. So the right has kind of been inf kind of not infected, but hit by this zero sum proposition that BLM gives them. But I say, don't be hit by that. Don't buy into it. Chain, rephrase the conversation, rephrase the conversation, because if the right truly values liberty and we truly value free thought and individualism, let us engage the conversation within at least the space of individualism. What do you think about that? I, I, I agree with you, but I think sometimes it's tricky for the right to actually engage in conversations with these people because Precisely. You're, not yeah. having, you're not having a lot of constructive debate in the streets. And as we discussed, the media is pretty locked down by people who are purporting to be objective, but only using that as a means to advance their own agenda. I think that in general, the right's response to all of this could use a little bit of refinement. I think that... Uh, you know, counter protesting. I don't understand. I've never understood counter protesting. And these videos you see of, you know, two opposing sides lined up like some sort of Hellenistic warrior group, you know, clashing in the streets with plywood shields. I think, personally, I think it's foolish. I think it's absolutely foolish. You know, people that defend their own property, you know, with firearms, absolutely defend your house, defend your business. But don't don a baseball helmet and pick up a plywood shield and pepper spray some Antifa guy. It's just, it's just dumb. And I think that one thing I really always admired about the left is how well they organize. It seems like everybody from AOC and the progressive squad right down to the individuals on the streets are ideologically on the same page. They're repeating the exact same phrases, false as those phrases may be. And uh, they're all sort of a step in line, uniform group. The right doesn't have that. We have, uh, you know, members of the police community that want to uphold law enforcement. We have, you know, far right elements that are out here doing sometimes unsavory things. We have, you know, the libertarian guys running around with guns. You know, I support those guys, but you know, what, what are you doing sometimes? You've got the journalists. We don't have the same unified front to actually meet these people in what would amount to open political combat. And I think we should fix that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I suppose we would only unify insofar as we combine our energies towards a common goal. We would not try to become the same, right? Because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, this violence that is happening begets violence. Sameness begets sameness. Likeness begets likeness. You're not going to get anything new from engaging in their tactics or anything new from trying to humor them. You know, right. uh, but, you know, the, the idea of self-defense, which is actually inherently linked to the idea of individual rights, inherently linked to the idea of natural rights, you know, which stands in stark contrast to this idea of relative truth, this idea mm -hmm. of, bi of all these random things being violence, words being violence, so on and so forth. You know, so when you, when you take these actions which seem mundane, mundane, you're actually making statement of principles. You're making principled statements. When a, when a person, a good-natured person, goes out to a gas station and says, hey, well, I'm going to defend this gas station, 
he's actually making a principled statement, wittingly or un unwittingly. So that's what I think about that. And I think that the right can really utilize the sort of manifestation of principles as a yeah. means to beat back some of these things. But even I think if the left is not going to with them. I think that a lot of our people don't share the same principles, and that's that's somewhat difficult. I think the left is a lot, they have a lot more shared principles among their membership than the right does, and that's kind of why we're having such a hard time, you know, enforcing law and order and getting all of our people on the same page. It can be a problem, but I think the individualization, the individuation of the right is something that we should cherish. We should cherish it, but we should cherish it within a collaborative context, in my opinion. I'm sure yeah. that kind yeah. of gets at what you're talking about. Sure, sure. Well, Kyle, you have been phenomenal. I, when I talk to reporters and journalists, most of them, you know, just sit there and they nod and they're like, okay, but you have yeah. been more than, you have been more than receptacle at this discussion. I appreciate it. Oh, so it's much. been a very enjoyable, um, one, one of the more enjoyable interviews I've done. I feel like we've actually gone beyond just, you know, reciting what happened, which I've done a dozen times now. And we've actually talked about deeper causes. I've really enjoyed it. Absolutely. So where can people find your work? Do you have a website? What's your Twitter and everything? And sure. also just tell us what's your, what's your next big adventure? What is your next big uh, sort of story that you're planning to cover? Sure, sure. So you can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Hooten 2 K-Y-L-E-H-O-O-T-E-N, and then the number two. Uh, I've got bylines primarily at uh, Alpha News Minnesota and The Daily Caller. I'm very proud to work for both of those websites. Both of them are filled with people much more talented, much more experienced than me, so absolutely go check them out. My next big endeavor, it's unclear at this point. It's unclear. I've got a buddy coming into town very soon, and we're going to try to do some follow-up reporting with business people in Minneapolis, but we're just trying to take it one day at a time and uh, not get mugged again. That's a primary objective is don't get more stuff stolen, but um, you know, I'm very confident that it'll all work out and we'll be able to keep bringing you the news from Minneapolis. Well, Kyle, you are heroic in my opinion. You are brave and you are, you, you are rightly motivated. So, um, please be safe and always walk in the light of the truth. Never, never falter in that path. Please don't. We have too many folks who are sort of ministers of, I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound uh, sort of fantastical here, ministers of, of dark ignorance that have just permeate across the media. Which is one of the reasons why I'm getting involved so I can fight them. Uh, so thank you so much, Kyle. And thank you so much for everyone watching. I appreciate it. As always, please subscribe, like us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, all that kind of stuff. But primarily, please. Stay.